Good afternoon, everybody. This is Ian Sagstetter with the Less Friction, More Business uh, podcast, and I've got Mark Campbell on the line with me today. Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Currently based out of, per your LinkedIn profile, based out of McLean, Virginia, correct? That's right. Well, I, I think kind of now we have to start every ep- Good old McLean. We have to start every episode with with this kind of format. How has it how has it been out there with um, the whole shutdown? Are things starting to open up? Is it getting back to normal over in Virginia, or is it still pretty <laughs> still pretty tight, still pretty locked up? No, it's it's well, it it's just now getting close to their phase one. Um, okay. The mayor said it was going to be opening up on the tenth. And so we're not quite there yet, but things are beginning to trickle, um, trickle in, you know, sort of a pre-phase one. So we're beginning to see things open up. And funny enough, um, I had just recently in the last three or four weeks been to Phoenix and it's so night and day. In Phoenix, you would swear that there's not a thing wrong. Um, hardly anybody is wearing masks. All the, everything has opened up. People are having a, a good time. No one is, um, you know, social distancing really. And um, then you come back to Virginia and it's just, it hits you in the face. Um, you go to the grocery store and 90% of the folks there have masks on and you go anywhere. People are wearing masks outside. So it almost feels like two different countries. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're, we're based out of Salt Lake city and it's kind of the same here um, in comparison to Phoenix, everything's opened up and, <laughs> I think the entire idea of precaution has kind of gone out the window, so to speak. Gyms are open, you know, bars are open, like the whole nine yards. So it's, yeah, it's, it's quite a stark difference in, uh, in the way things are. But um, from, from a perspective, like, obviously, we talk a lot in, in, this, in this podcast on various procurement supply chain topics. And an underlying conversation I'm hearing a lot of lately is that this pandemic and this situation is actually in the long run going to benefit um, various supply chain and procurement organizations. Um, do you kind of, do you see the same type of light or do you see things kind of just going, you know, along as status quo, how things, how they always have been, or do you see um, a little bit more energy and a little bit more spotlight shown on the various supply chain organizations, given the, given the current situation? Oh, I, I think that the pandemic has actually raised the awareness of what procurement and strategic sourcing and the value that it can bring to an organization. I mean, it was almost within a moment's notice, it was thrust in the limelight and organizations were either sinking or swimming based on the maturity and how well their supply chains were able to react. And so, and it has changed a, a number of things um, in how it's viewed, the value that can be created um, given a disruption. And that, um, that actually is something that's near and dear to my heart, this idea of around disruption and innovation and thinking differently. So um, absolutely, I think that it has changed. Yeah, and let's let's talk about that. The you know disruption and innovation. Um, you know, if you don't mind, before we dive into it any deeper, you spent a lot of time at Intel within the procurement organization, and, and then finally, um, per this per this uh, per your LinkedIn profile, we're leading we're leading the organization at Intel. 
you know, can you just provide a little bit of background and in, in your experience and a little bit of color um, around the various things that you saw there and, and, and you know, practice there? Of course. Uh, I spent 25 years there. And when, when you look back on your uh, career, when you've stayed with a company for so long, and you look to see all of the change that took place, it's, it's quite fascinating, um, really, to think about it like that. I, I started in 1995. Um, and then I ended my career there in, um, at the end of 2018. And when I look back and I see the amount of change that took place, um, I mean, what a wonderful story. There were a number of internal awards. Intel has this um, award that only the best organizations within Intel, they compete for. And it's a two to three year process. And it's the Intel Innovation Award. Very few companies or very few organizations win it. And I was fortunate enough to have my organization win it twice um, within a eight-year, nine-year period. And, and the reason why we did that was because of the innovation and the change in value that was brought um, to, the, um, to Intel and to our organization. And it, 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 I have such a passion for this idea of learning and the idea of structured innovation. Uh, when you think back in history, and even mo most recently, you know, when I'm teaching a class and I bring this up to everyone, I, I, one of the very first questions that I ask is, hey, how is everybody getting around? Is anybody still going around in a horse and buggy? Because that used to be a BKM back in the day. It went from walking to a horse and buggy, and now we have an automobile, right? And pretty soon, <laughs> if Intel has anything to do with it, you won't even need to be driving any longer. You'll just sit back in, in your car, and you'll, you'll be able to just get around and have it take you everywhere, right? Um, how is that? Why is that happening? Um, why does everyone now have a cell phone versus have an analog phone? Um, that change happened quite quickly and other change takes forever to take place and Thinking about that and how you can apply it to the business and how you can either accelerate or decelerate innovation um, Is something that I just find completely fascinating Okay, yeah, and, and if you don't mind like you, you've mentioned you've thrown that That term around structured innovation if you don't mind just kind of providing a higher level overview for people who have never, you know, kind of heard that term thrown around in a business in a business case before. I know you've driven, yeah, I know you've absolutely. dove into it just there, but it's just more of like a high level. I don't know if anyone may have caught that. Of course, um, and and this is Mark Campbell's humble opinion, right? And there are countless um, articles about how to invent change, how to lead change, how to create change, um, and innovation in your organization. But I think of it like this. Um, it's the combination between being able to um, have thought leadership, being able to generate ideas, and the identification of opportunity. And all of that is centered around learning, but it all has a basis in storytelling. Um, you can create a wonderful set of innovation, but if you can't sell it and you can't tell a story, 
then it doesn't become reality. And all too often we see um, that it's either a haphazard approach or even with a very structured approach, if you don't have that last hurdle, getting it over the hump, uh, then much of the value is lost. And so that's when I think of structured innovation, I think of just that. And the question is, and I like to think of it in terms of economic terms. Uh, I have this equation that I share with people um, when I work with them, and, and it's my ERGS equation. And if one value of output is equal to, one hour of output is equal to one ERG, um, the most that Mark Campbell will ever produce in any one year um, is 2,080 ergs. And that's if I do everything myself. But if I can go out and get people to work with me or on my behalf on projects, activities, things that I find important, well, now all of a sudden, if I can get one person to spend all of their time helping me, well, now I have 4,000 ergs of output. If I can get a handful of people to do that, well, now I've exponentially changed the way that I can get things done. And this goes back to working at the, the opportunity that procurement has and working with their supply base. The very best supply chain organizations in the world, more than 50% of the value that's generated is generated from suppliers. So all too often people think of structured innovation as it's something that I have to do myself. It's something that I've got to have the organization learn. And you're missing a very large part of the equation when you only center it on yourself versus centering it both on your own organization and how you can unleash your supply chain um, to generate value on your behalf. Totally makes sense. So from that, from that perspective, very, and even from maybe from, you're talking from a procurement perspective, but on the other side, it would be the similar on like a sales side, like involving your customers. So from a procurement supply chain view, it's how can we involve our suppliers? And from a sales perspective, how can we involve our customers? Is that, is that the, cor the correlation a lot of time people would make there? It, 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 you can make that correlation, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So within that, you know, how do you, from a leadership perspective, you know, you're talking, you talked about within your teams winning these awards twice within Intel. How are you coordinating the processes, the methods, the structure, and even, I mean, to go as far as the culture around this innovation, how are you from top to bottom, how are you bringing in the personnel to help with these projects and, you know, coordinate them there and then developing the structure around that? What's the, you know, if you could nail down to the first two to three, because there's probably 10 to 15 different steps within that, but if you could nail that down to the first like two to three crucial steps in that process, what would they be? Well, it's a, it's a great question and, and let me answer it this way. And there are certainly, you know, there's a dozen things that you can do, but I'll just talk about a handful, three or four. Um, the first of which is if, Practice makes perfect. If you don't practice the idea of changing the game in the way that you perform an activity, you're most likely to get into a rut and do it over and over and over the very same way. And that's going to that's gonna prevent um, additional or incremental learning that can take place during that event. So one of the ideas that we like to do is to provide some level of disruption. It could be small, it could be large. The COVID-19 was a disruption. 
and it was a great learning opportunity for a number of organizations in how they can take advantage um, of this situation. A number of companies, how long did it take to have a large part of the United States begin to make masks? Companies that were making beer, stopped making beer, started to make hand sanitizer. Um, people that were making um, shirts and things of different sizes started to make masks. And why? Because there was an opportunity that they saw that could take place. So first things first is, without some level of disruption, i.e. a smartphone, people were just willing to not use their phone in a certain way. And no one recognized um, the opportunity that existed in their hand walking around every day. So providing some level of disruption um, on an ongoing but continuous basis, purposefully into the process in working with your people. And I'll give you an example. Always with my teams, when I'm conducting one-on-ones with them, and they think it's funny that I do this, but I do it in every single engagement and one-on-one that I have with them, I force them to tell me something new, something that I haven't heard before in that exchange. And I'm trying to, in a very uh, off-centered kind of way, I'm trying to get them to think about the idea that, hey, there's a learning opportunity that can't take place. I need to share something new with my boss. What can I share with him that he hasn't heard before? And it puts people in a mindset of thinking out of the box, if you will. And I like to say it, it's really thinking in the box, but thinking in the box with purpose. Um, so that's first. Second is, and I've, I've in a number of sessions that I'm in, and, and I'm always asked, you know, if you're speaking with um, new people in the organization, folks that are just coming out of school, so forth and so on, they always ask a question, if you're doing a panel or whatnot, they always ask the question, what class would you share with us that we should take if you had to do your schooling all over again? And I love that question. And I almost always say storytelling. You only get so little time if you're talking with your CEO or your CFO, or if you are working in an organization, you only get so many opportunities to affect change. And you hear people talk about the elevator statements and you hear people talk about this, that, and the other. And what it really boils down to is how effective are you at telling a story that, that creates a picture or creates a want of some kind. And that want can either be a hatred of the current reality, um, or it could be a picture of what utopia could be like if we could just move. And the whole idea is you, you, you need to get them on, a, on the train, and you can either get them on the train by burning the platform, or you can get, the, get them on the train through some type of an enticement. But you need to be able to do one or the other. And being able to effectively storytell um, is such a critical skill. Um, the influence that you can create by really understanding what need or problem needs to get solved or what value do your stakeholders or customers, what do they really value? And um, dovetailing very neatly story into the center of their value um, has been just exceptional when I've seen that take place. And then the third item is, is that I like to call it fail fast. I want to see failure. 
you learn so much more when you fail than when you succeed. I want people to do new things and I encourage them to fail. If you have people on your team take a risk and then you immediately punish them, whether it's um, openly or whether it's just by your not being happy with them, what you're basically saying is, hey, don't try anything new. And they're going to shut down. By openly rewarding failure in such a in in such a way, it encourages everyone to say, "Wow, you know what? You took a risk and you were rewarded. I'm going to take a risk as well." Now, there's a limit to that. You, you can't just so you know be so flippant that you take risk without um, some caution. But as long as it's an educated risk, and as long as you make uh, people in the organization understand what the possibilities are, then we want people to fail. And there was a lot of failure, I'm sure, that was understood during this pandemic. And it created a tremendous amount of value, I believe, in many people's supply chains. So those are the three things um, that I would uh, you know, share with you on what I find to be important when we, when we think about the structured innovation. And, and again, it, it has to be purposeful. Every now and again, a blind squirrel is going to find an acorn every now and again, and good for the squirrel, okay? But if there was a structured way in which that took place, that blind squirrel would find that acorn much more frequently. Um, if they were taught in order to do a certain process in a certain way, and it's going to uncover opportunity. And so let me, um, I've been talking for a while, let me stop there. Yeah, so basically structured innovation as a, as a process to create creative ideas, essentially, is, is what I'm gathering from this. I'm, let's piggyback off the second point you made, storytelling. Um, when, you're, when you're speaking internally within an organization and you have to get feedback or buy-in from, from a certain persona, i.e. the CEO or CFO, at what stage is the involvement and what stage are you presenting these ideas um, to them within this process of, of research and development, trial and error, trying to figure out which innovative ideas should be brought forward and, and help a company move forward? At what stage are you involve, involving these, these external stakeholders? Well, I, I like to say that if you can involve them in the very beginning um, by developing, developing that relationship, having a very intimate understanding of what their needs are, um, you're in a much more effective influencing position to, to share with them what opportunities are. I'll give you a recent example in my company um, with Grace. Uh, Grace has been, it's been a company that's 150 plus years old. And they have a certain way of doing business. And here I am, fresh out of Intel, changed coasts. And I found myself saying, hey, you know, there, there's a number of things that have taken place that have been around for a very long time, one of which is integrated facilities management. It started 50 years ago um, in the banking industry, and it's wound its way around into the different market segments. But here's something, um, it's certainly not a new idea. It certainly has been around for a very long time. And when I presented the idea 
that grace with its 22 locations around the world could potentially have a single supplier own and manage um, the activities that are going on within the facilities globally, they laughed at me. And, and, and the CFO said, well, there isn't a supplier on earth that can make that happen, Mark. And I said, well, I beg to differ. I said, do you have five minutes? He goes, sure. And so I shared with him a little story. And he goes, wow, you're kidding me. I said, I'm not kidding you. If you can give me 30 minutes next week, I'll put some material together and I'll share with you some of the benefits that other companies have seen in working in a integrated fashion across their facilities. And he said, absolutely. So here, Grace has been doing this business for a very long time. No one in the organization understood that those suppliers even existed. Companies like CBRE, JLL, um, Cushman Wakefield. And when they heard and when they saw the information, they're like, okay, I get it, but are you sure it can fit with grace? And that's almost always the second question that you get. I see how it can be valuable for someone else, but is it going to be valuable for me? Well, I said, let me, and, and, and this is something that we'll do and it's free, right? It'll, it'll take a little bit of energy on our part. But let me do an exploratory um, investigation of what we, Grace, might do with IFM. And they said, absolutely, happen. And we brought it back after a couple of months, and we shared the value that could be created. And it blew um, our leadership's minds that they actually would be willing to put it down that if they didn't generate the value that it wouldn't cost us um, as much to make it happen. So they were putting their money where their mouth is and making it value-based. And that was a constant change as well. So I, I share that idea or that story to share that it change can happen anywhere. Change can happen in the very grassroots level. Change can happen with your CE or CEO and CFO. And anywhere in between, as long as people are willing to have a conversation, create a bit of disruption or the idea of disruption, and then taking advantage of that um, conversation through being able to tell a very pointed story. Okay. So, yeah, off the grassroots thing, because if, if, forgive me if my assumption's incorrect, but this project that you just mentioned that's saving x amount of spend which seemed like a large number that seems like a relative you're working directly with the cfo correctly on this as you presented to originally this seems like a very large project if, you, if you're somewhere that's smaller um in, in a smaller role or maybe in a role that's not as experienced within the organization do you have how do you affect incremental change and in, in smaller innovations and how do you present those things upwards to your direct superiors because for me it seems like these conversations are a little bit more organic at the higher levels of an organization, but for someone who's earlier in their career, how do they make these incremental changes to kind of fulfill this culture that's trying to be, that's being implemented across, you know, all fronts of a company? Right. Well, I'll give you an example. Um, I was fresh out of 
graduate school in 1995, and I came to Intel, and I was in charge of the facilities procurement at Intel. And um, we immediately, within the first, I don't know, three to four months at Intel, we immediately went into a cost reduction measure where uh, the CPO came down and said, hey, you need to find X millions of dollars. And we were all given a target, if you will. And here am I fresh out of school and I'm looking at this and, and, I, and I'm looking at the way that um, Intel was choosing to clean its office. And I was like, hey, why is it that we have all of these different collection points and they have to go to all of these offices and there's a lot of time involved. If you just sit back and do a little lean activity and you just manage by walking around and look and see, well, all of a sudden it, it was like, hey, if I were to draw that on the map, I certainly wouldn't share that that's how I was going to do the work. But by design, because everybody has a cube, well, that's what we ended up doing. So I came up with the idea, well, why don't we create a center, if you will, where we have the trash and recycle collection? And it was just an idea. Well, sh sure enough, when they looked at that, they said, hey, we actually could cut X amount of costs out of our current contract. And th this was very site specific. This certainly wasn't Intel wide. Um, and we ended up doing that. And it was one little small idea made by someone that was in the company for less than three months that ended up resulting in a very small amount of savings. But the idea was that we were thinking differently. It doesn't matter where you are in the organization and the, the, the position that you might be in you might not have the visibility to the big ticket ideas. The ideas may be relatively small, but it's the amount of change and how quickly it can take place. That's the value um, that is generated. You're not always going to hit a home run, um, but it's the small amount of change that takes place that catapults the organization forward time and time again so that um, you look down the road for four or five years and a significant amount of change is taking place because as one change is created, then the next change is built on top of that and you get a compounding effect because you're not going back to ground zero. And so I would just encourage anyone um, in the organization, as I do with our own, um, the idea of generating ideas, generating different ways of working and disruption telling me something that I didn't already know, to tell the organization something that it doesn't currently understand. Um, but it also comes with, how are we educating ourselves? Uh, if we only eat our own dog food, that's all that we'll ever know. Um, organizations, by and large, many of them, had or did not have a telecommute policy leading up to this pandemic. Grace was one of them. It was 100%. You had to be on site. Now, all of a sudden, after being shown or demonstrated that during this time, the organization can be effective working remote, well, now the organization's looking at allowing telecommute 60, 70, 80% of the time. And that, I mean, that's a complete change from a company that has been in business for 150 years and had been doing it one way 
and now they're doing it a different way. Um, and that change was led by or created by the disruption. Again, it wasn't a disruption by an individual. It was a disruption by outside. So I would tell people in all walks of the organization, it's good to create ideas on your own, but it's also good, again, to work with others and suppliers and your network and have them help create those ideas and those disruptions with you. Yeah, and when you're when, when you're speaking on the experience that you had that you had earlier and a lot of this is a lot of this from a leadership perspective it's encouraging, you know, employees to take risks and and to do things and to think outside the box or think within the box but, you know, have have those disruptions in mind. This this first experience it sounds Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you know three year, three months three months excuse me out of graduate school you go into Intel and you make this this cost saving opportunity happen. It, it's a it's a it's a confidence boost at that point, correct? So it oh, encourages yeah it, it encourages you to continue working on and working in that direction. And then obviously when you're in the leadership role, you have these experiences of of innovating and, and creating cost savings and innovation across an organization through your supply base. What if early on there's failure like you mentioned earlier and you have these younger younger personas out of graduate school out of undergraduate school going into these positions within supply chain and procurement and they have these opportunities where they don't where they don't necessarily innovate in the way that was expected or they don't generate the cost savings and the targets that were there how do you continue from a leadership from the leadership side how do you continue to motivate them to you know continue thinking in this manner of innovating constantly, trying to trying to be disruptive and trying to push the organization forward? Um, it, it's, a, it's a great question. And, it, and it, you really have to try um, to make that happen. Uh, it can't just be something that if, if you think that in your head, yes, I'm only, always going to reward failure. And um, as people don't succeed, um, I'm sure that they're always going to try and try again. That may not be the case. And so part of having a structured innovation program and the idea behind it is you have to have an easy place for people to fall. And they have to know that they're safe and they have to know that what, what they're trying to achieve or what you're trying to achieve is the idea about value identification and learning and if you measure it in that way you'll never have failure per se because they'll be learning about what went wrong and what went right and you expect them to take that learning and to go again and try if you're trying to reward on the idea of a result well potentially you're going to have an issue because you're not, again, not always going to be successful. So if you measure the right expectation, you can create the idea around, hey, the value is in the learning. I'm rewarded for learning. I'm rewarded for creating a disruption. Now, we do want good results, but it's not just results for results sake. And so, 
by putting a program in place where you're looking at and rewarding the learning that takes place itself versus um, the outcome, you can continually help share and help encourage the employees um, that are working for you. And I'll, I'll give you a really good story. So um, same time frame. it was within a year of me being at Intel and I had a wonderful um, leader in Tim Hart. And let me give you the, the context. Uh, one of the buildings down in Ocotillo had just been built and the um, VP of operations lived down in Ocotillo. And he gave me a call one day and he called me directly. And I thought for sure, you know, being fresh out of school that, hey, the reason why Luther Disney is calling me is to share with me how wonderful of a job that our organization is doing and how wonderful of a job my suppliers are doing down there in the facility. Um, and as I was leaving, because there were multiple campuses, and so I was leaving one, one campus to go to the next to go visit him because he wanted to see me in his office. Um, I walked by my boss, his cube, and I said, hey, um, Luther Disney um, called me and wants to see me. And my boss says, directly, did he? And I go, yeah. And he goes, okay, and he just smiled at me. Well, I went down there, and I went into his office, and, he, and I go, hello, Luther. I'm, let me introduce myself on my camera. He goes, walk with me. And we get up from his office, and we walk down the aisle, and we walk to the end of the row where all you see is nothing but glass and all over the glass was nothing but bird you know what everywhere and he goes that's been there for four weeks i don't want to see it tomorrow and he turns and leaves <laughs> and i looked at that and i looked at and there must have been i don't know um 50 feet of window and it was covered in bird you know what now i had a choice at that point in time right um, the expectation was set it has to get done and at the time i could have contacted my supplier owner shared with him what needed to get done he then would have interned called the site manager the site manager would have called the area manager the area manager would have called the person themselves to get all of that off the window okay so there's option number one uh, option number two is i had all of the keys to the facilities option number two is i can go down get a bucket get cleaning material and i can make sure that that is spotless so that when luther comes in the next day is taken care of and i looked at myself and said what are the risks the inherent risks and <laughs> having that discussion with the supplier and how is that going to make its way back to this person to ensure that it's done so being the self-starter that i am i went down and got me a bucket and a pail and i got done around 10 p.m cleaning all of the windows but what that did for me and you talk about a disruption do you think that that disrupted my day here I am, fresh out of graduate school, thinking that I'm a little smarty, and I get into Intel, and now I'm cleaning stuff off windows. But it impressed upon me the idea behind what's the effective communication with what's taking place with my supplier and how the expectations are being set 
and how they're being executed. Clearly, the scopes of work that we had written weren't working because it, it didn't take a rocket scientist to walk by that window and understand that we were failing. So why did that take place? And it led me to change the way that we performed the work. And guess what? We were only going to pay for the work that was done. We turned the contract into a value-based contract. So when windows weren't cleaned, we weren't paying for it. So now who took on the risk of that work being done? We started to share the risk because it wasn't completely borne by Intel. And from that experience, and a lot of people would have you know, been upset over that, it is such a funny experience today and still people talk about that event taking place. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I was um, very politely called the bird crap guy. Um, for the longest time, I would walk into a room and they would, oh, hey, there's more. But I loved it because it was great advertising. Um, so there's my, uh, you can make a change no matter where you are. And you can turn a situation that was a very big negative into a very big positive quickly. That's, that's actually a really good story. Uh, I actually really appreciate that because a lot of the things, and I won't dive into it with, into any detail, but a lot of things I've experienced, I'm three years out of school and two years out of um, an athletic career. So or one year out of an athletic career, I spent two years in athletics after graduating from school. So a lot of the things I had to do while I transitioned into business were maybe not quite the same, but along the same vein. So I really appreciate that story. And I think coming from your, from your position where you're at now, a lot of people in that are earlier on in their careers, you know, out of graduate school, out of undergraduate, they would appreciate that as well. How do you, how do you communicate and, and what do you think the best when you're structuring innovation and encouraging disruption with an organization what is what is the best way for a leader to proactively take that approach is it you know like you mentioned earlier is it pursuing it in all of the one-on-one -on -one conversations is it having a process that's completely outlined and detailed down down to the last down to the last little bit where people know that this is the way i'm going to innovate what for example i'm going to spend 10 percent of my time thinking about disruptive and innovative ideas what's the best way as a leader to kind of outline these processes and communicate and motivate these ideas down to, down to their various managers and various teams? You know, it's a, it's a good question. Um, you have to tie it into your daily life. Uh, a lot of times people try to make this happen and they try to design a function and they try to force fit it in. And I, I've seen that happen time and time again. And very often it leads to very little success. And so in my experience, what I've seen work and what has worked always for me is define a very simple process and make sure that you set the expectation. And you don't have to define it in the nth degree to detail, but you have a very simple process that you share with them that this is what we are going to do. And when you come talk with me about your category, about your area, I'm expecting to see disruption and I'm expecting to see something that I didn't already know. And all it takes is for a handful of conversations and for me to say, I didn't learn anything new. I have to learn something new. How are we going to disrupt this business? How are we going to think differently? How are you going to generate learning? 
um, from this activity? And what might it lead to? And as soon as they get to see that I mean what I say, and I say what I mean, and I'm going to reward them for generating that thought leadership, uh, even having, again, that simple conversation when we have our one-on-ones about me reinforcing the idea that I want to hear something new, uh, tells them that this is going to be okay. And it, and it tells them that this is a safe environment and we do want to help each other. Uh, organizations, by and large, and you hear this all the time, um, especially over the last five or six years, this idea around diversity of thought. It is absolutely true. Um, the more people that you can get with different backgrounds, different ideas, different thoughts, different vantage points, the more value that you're going to create in the organization. If everybody looks and acts and feels the same, um, well, that's what you're going to get. But when you can create an environment where you're looking for and seeking and purposefully acting in this um, disruptive, structured innovation thinking way. Um, people enjoy it. Um, people, by and large, do want to learn new things. They want to advance their career. Um, they want to have the opportunity to try um, new things. And again, when you reward that failure, because you're talking about the learning that's taking place and not necessarily the result, um, it really gets people excited about what the opportunities could be. And going back to that, you know, that last story, um, we talked long and hard about um, the learning that took place there. And I was the first person to raise my hand and say, it really made me think about how we communicate with our supply base. Because I couldn't at that point know with 100% certainty that if I made a phone call and had a discussion, that it would result in the expected behavior. And so I can continue to just let that go and say, well, if they do it half the time, it's going to be okay. Or eh, if they only do it 25% of the time, it's going to be okay. The expectation is, is that it's 100% always the expected result, right? When you share information with um, the person that you're wanting to see the result take place. And so I had to ask the question, well, we have to change it. How it's going today? isn't working and if people think about that even how they do their daily jobs um daily activities uh you know i i'm walking down the street and i'm even trying to improve uh, my mother always said this um always give god your best and always um give you know 200 percent. i'm walking down the street and my dog is bothering me the way that he's walking. And, and so now I start trying to improve the dog because if I can improve how the dog walks with me, I'll have a better experience. And so I, I spent weeks trying to get the dog to not jump around and run around. And I don't typically spend a lot of time training dogs, but with the pandemic and I started walking my dog, guess what? My experience walking my dog was terrible. My experience today walking my dog is fantastic. Why? Because I spent time trying to help him understand what my expectations were and now he does um so i i would that's how i would answer that question yeah and that's again 
insightful. So I, I actually think, you know, we spent quite, quite spent quite a bit of time here on, on this topic of structured innovation. And I think it's perhaps a good place to, to leave off there and to sign off. Is there anything before, you know, we hop off and call it a day that you might want to add? Uh, no, but, or just, um, I don't know. I, I, I just love the learning process. I hope that um, for the folks that were listening, that they can um, take that back and understand how a structured idea around innovation can actually improve not just their work lives, but their daily lives. And even with your guys' company, I mean, I know that this is a bit self-promoting, but if, if you look at fundamentally, and I talked about communication with that, um, with that supplier earlier, if people were looking at, at this from an outside-in perspective, and they looked at how would we effectively want to communicate and work with our suppliers, nobody would design it the way that it's working today. Not at all. It's the reason why you have things like Facebook and LinkedIn become so successful because it's a lot of effort to try to have a many-to-many relationship. If I can create a message and then have that message shared multiple times over, so much more effective, i.e. this podcast, than me trying to call every single one of these folks on the phone and say, hey, I've got a message for you. So I would encourage people, if, if they haven't tried working with or thought about working um, on improving their ability to work more effectively with um, suppliers to look at Graphite Connect and see what it can do for you because it really is um, a game changer. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate that. And yeah, our, our co-founders, when you're speaking on these things of, of disrupting the industry, I, from, from my experience and from what I'm seeing and kind of the background I've been that's been explained to me within procurement and supply chain. I can, I can certainly agree with you that they are doing that. So appreciate that. Appreciate that there. So um, yeah, again, Mark, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you giving a lot of not just supply chain specific examples, but adding in some real life examples as well, because I think that's going to allow the audience base to kind of broaden and it's effective across the messages effective across a variety of areas. I'm certainly going to go, back and listen to this time and time again and apply the lessons here into my career. So again, just thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you guys.